Hello, I'm Jason Solomons. Welcome to Seen Any Good Films Lately and a special podcast dedicated to one of the greats of cinema, Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin's is far more seductive, I think, and, and playful and mischievous. That sort of wistful gracefulness that was always, always instilled in him. My guests today are the British documentary makers James Spinney and Peter Middleton, who, after their award-winning debut, Notes on Blindness, have now turned to the silent era and to one of the most enduring figures in popular culture, The Little Tramp. Their new film attempts to find out who the man behind the iconic Tramp costume really was, charting a fascinating journey to stardom using some remarkable reconstructions and audio. The documentary takes us from the poverty of an almost Dickensian childhood in South London, off to America, to founding Hollywood, becoming the biggest star in the world. Then there were the scandals around his marriages, the way he faced down Hitler, and then the allegations of communism from America itself to living in exile in Switzerland. It's an absolutely fascinating life, and I was intrigued by the film and what I would feel about it, although as soon as I began to watch it, I was hooked. So when I did get to talk to James Spinney and Peter Middleton, I began by asking them why Charlie Chaplin was still in any way relevant to our modern cinema audiences and to a new generation of viewers of filmed content for whom silent cinema must be as old as history itself. It's interesting making the film at this time because I think we're conscious that Certainly for our generation, I think for people younger than us, like you, we've always had an image of Chaplin in our minds. Um, like for, for as long as I can remember, when I heard the name Charlie Chaplin, I would picture a man um, with a hat, a bald moustache, cane and the boots. But that's long before I'd seen a Chaplin film. And when we were beginning this project, actually, we did a workshop with um, some local school kids and we, um, we showed them a picture of Charlie Chaplin out of costume and said, does anyone recognise this man? And then we started to assemble the bits of the costume and, and more on my hands went up and, and, and the name Charlie Chaplin came out. And they'd never seen a, a Chaplin film at all. And then we watched a, a few scenes from some of the shorts and from the kid. And they were absolutely killing themselves laughing. Um, it was instantaneous connection. And so it's interesting that to some degree, there is that cultural residue in terms of the costume and, and, and the name. But, there, but perhaps there's a gulf between that and people actually seeing, and, uh, seeing his films. But as soon as that's bridged, as soon as people watch them, you know, these films that are over 100 years old, there is an immediacy there. A big part of the film that we've been trying to a big thing we've been trying to untangle in the film is like, where does that come from? And, you know, at the, be at the beginning of the film, we, we look at this idea of Chaplin looking at us from across the screen. The fact that um, he just seems to effortlessly build up this kind of rapport with you by, um, by staring out at you, by breaking the fourth wall, by breaking kind of one of the fundamental rules of cinema that we don't look down the lens of the camera. But well, it wasn't no. a rule. Was it a rule then? It was, it was only an well, early rule. I don't they had no, any that's, rules. That's true. But no one did it quite like, well, I guess Buster Keaton's always checking in with you too. But, but Chaplin's is far more seductive, I think, and, and playful and mischievous. And he does it in his very first film, of course. Well, mm. first film with the Tramp. I love that, yeah. I didn't know that. Um, but I love that clip. Yeah, exactly. And so he's, it's kind of, it's funny that what, what occurs to him as being the first gag that he can experiment with, really, with cinema, also becomes this foundational aspect of the character. And I think a big part of that is, is this idea that he's always on your side, that that he's, he's kind of, he's always checking in with you and that he is this everyman figure. Uh, the, the tramp has no name. We don't know where he's from. 
Um, he doesn't seem to be able to hold down any steady employment. Um, he's always being thrown out of uh, jobs and places. And and so he's he's a drifter. You examine so. that that character brilliantly, that everyman character, the, you know, and, and lots of people over the years have foisted readings on him as a wandering Jew or a gypsy or, a you know, a, a, an everyman or, he, you know, he's from every country and it can get love. Do, do we know if that was a sort of serendipitous bit of genius or was that actually his idea as he started it Chapman uh, did he did he do that Peter do you know I mean there's a bit where you kind of say how he assembled the costume and it's rather brilliant and mm. stuff I didn't know but do you think that he thought mm, you know there was a certain sort of luck that happened with this clown I, I think I think there probably was a degree of serendipity in the way that that costume and that character came together but one of the one of the things that's striking even just reading Chaplin's autobiography, and and uh, we touch on it a bit in the film as well, is just like this this his great skill for mimicry. And there's an account in his autobiography where he talks about sitting with his mother uh, at the window with his mother and 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 watching people walk in the street, walk by in the street, and his mother being this incredible influence on him and 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 her ability to just intone that 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 personality, the characters of of, of London life around him, and that was definitely that chap something that Chapman was exposed to from from a young age. And there's a certain kind of restlessness, I think, in his well, even in his kind of early creative output before he even found fame in, in music hall, let alone the extraordinary fame he found in cinema, where he was always trying uh, trying characters, um, refreshing that sense of renewal, that certain restless creative energy. And I think he brought that to to the screen. You know, he had that extraordinary foundation in in his music hall and vaudeville training. That kind of, that sort of wistful gracefulness that was always, always instilled in him. He brought that to the screen at a time when people were still experimenting with the form and still trying to find out what screen comedy was. Mm -hmm. Chaplin seemed to have a bit of a head start above, above um, everyone else. And, and, it, and it no doubt stood him in good stead. I mean, of course, the tramp, once he once he discovered that character in, in in Kid Auto Races, it was something he dined out on for the for sixty odd films, was it eighty odd films? So we should probably get our stats right on that. <laughs> but the um, but the but the character itself, although it had that kind of. Uh, um, had, had 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 this 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 little little fellow at the heart of it was of course always being renewed, refreshed. One 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 film he'd be playing a, a fireman, the next a ballet dancer, the next a policeman, and he just had this extraordinary sense of being able to observe everyday life and mimic that and tone that and put that into his artwork. And do you think when you mentioned those kids watching the Chaplin stuff? You know, they used to kind of clip. So short films work for them. Little skits kind of seem to work for the YouTube generation or the TikTok generation they are now. I see. I sort of see Chaplin-esque pratfalls on TikTok just as much as, you know, you would have in the, in, in the, penny, in the penny cinemas, That's... the Nickelodeons back then. That's so true. He's very like condensable. Like he, he's, he, there's so many excellent Chaplin gifts. You know, you can kind of, um, so I think in that sense, he does appeal to the internet generation. On the other hand, we what we learned trying, I think, to condense his scenes down and to edit his films is that is that yes, there are these kind of beautiful sort of I guess firework moments, but actually the way that a 
gag de develops over the course of um, of a sequence in the Chaplin film. It, it builds so deftly. He sort of the, from the setup to the way that he develops it to the climax. And often, if you just take these tiny moments, I feel you lose so much by. Uh, it's almost like just hearing a short snippet of music or something. You know, you're you're losing the the flow and the development of it. And he is quite hard to edit down in that. And so when we were when we were constructing the film, we tried to leave sequences as long as possible so they could really breathe and you could really see how it is just like a piece of music. I, I love your um, the, the Charlie Chaplin lookalike contests. That's my, it's always a great gag, isn't it, about somebody who enters a lookalike contest and, and, and loses, you know, a real person comes in, the moose comes in second. You know, it's, uh, it, 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 it's classic stuff. Uh, he came in 12th, I think, in one of yours, the rumour the, the rumor is in, in your film. Yeah. Is that, do we have 12th? Well, tw 20th, I think, 20th. is in that cartoon, isn't it? But that, this, is, this is what we were especially drawn to. I mean, that, that opening sequence when we start the film, this, this quote, enjoy any Charlie Chaplin you have the good fortune to encounter, but don't Try and link them up. There's so much kind of so much kind of mythology and and, and rumor and speculation swirling around. Not only, of course, uh, well, around around Charlie Chaplin, the man, let alone let alone the, the, the Trump character, who, as as we were saying, does have this ability to just sort of reform and to um, to this restless kind of uh, this, this, this this quality to sort of inhabit objects or people or other professions or what have you. So, so what we were particularly interested in, I suppose, was how. Uh, how Charlie Chaplin, the man, also had this mis mystique around him. And Chaplin, uh, it's not in the film, but he would deny that story of the of the um, <laughs> of the of the lookalike contest. But I think he probably also quite enjoyed it. But my favourite bit of your film is is Effie. This uh, this I didn't know about this Kevin Browner recording uh, of this this woman who who knew Chaplin from the you know grew up next door him. I mean her testimony is brilliant. So you you've got her audio and you you you've got an actress mouthing her audio in classic Spinny Middleton fashion. <laughs> um, that that seems to be right right at the heart of what you two do. And I was very interested in this this woman and this that that voice and you know and creating that because that seems to be. You know what what Charlie would have sounded like. She, although he had elocution lessons, I mean, it must have been. I, I'd never heard of this this tape before. When did you find it? What were your feelings when you found it? And how did you think you were going to use it? That's a recording that, um, that for us answered a great mystery, which was what did the young Charlie Chaplin sound like? You know, there were reports that he um, testified in a in a court in a court case in his childhood that no one could understand him because of his thick Cockney accent. But of course, Chaplin, when he became famous, had this very um, sort of um, very mannered and polite um, and what was the word I'm searching for? Very refined voice, I suppose. Um, and we hear that in the 1966 interview with Richard Merriman. Um, and it seems a very far cry from what he might have sounded like on the streets of South London. And so when we heard this recording of Effie Wisdom, who was friends with him as a child, saying, oh, yes, he used to talk like me, um, forget his H's. It felt revelatory, um, firstly, just for not just for settling that, but also for, for it kind of offering us just a sense of hearing in her voice what his childhood would have been like um, and hearing how, how she pitied him. You know, she lived, um, her aunt lived on the same street as him, um, but she felt sorry for this young boy in ragged clothes who was always hungry, living in this tiny attic room with his mother, the same attic room that he then recreates in the kid, of course. Um, and we felt transported 
not just into 1890s London, but kind of into her Effie's kitchen um, as yeah. she was telling us this story. That, that happened in a few, a few moments, both with the Effie, Effie recording, um, with this interview that happened in 1966 for Life magazine, which is the only interview that we really came across that was a very in-depth kind of portrait of Chaplin in his own words. You know, Chaplin didn't like interviews. He uh, he was very self-conscious about how he came across. So it's 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 a rare thing that he allowed this Richard Merriman in, into his um, into his home for three days. And 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 when we kind of listened to that recording, and then also looking at the the photographs that were taken on the day it, it uh, on the days it took place. We kind of um, daydreamed about the idea of, of restaging it in the same room it took place. And, and it was a kind of eerie process hearing Chaplin's voice resounding around that room, that, you know, in the same place that he, that he spoke those words. And so then of course, went to the same place? So it was filmed in, in Chaplin's original home in Switzerland, the Manoir de Ban, um, which is now a museum. And it had been... It had been Chaplin um, Museum, is it? Or now the Chaplin yeah, Museum, right, yeah, yeah. right, called Chaplin World. It had been, it's been kind of recreated to look as it as it did at the time and we did a lot more work to art direct it to match the photographs that um that we intercut the oh, scene wow. so that was a very interesting process um yeah how, as long, I say, were you, how long were you in there getting that all right i think we were in switzerland for a week nice um shooting yeah and you had um, your actors to do to, to voice it in exactly the right way i mean it's you know they, they that's right in, in a way in a way, oh, thank you. Well, in a way, we were sort of guided by the recording and by the photographs because between between those two things, it was sort of the, the actors' movements were very much guided um, by those things because um, we knew we'd be it'd be resting on those on those uh, bits of archive. Yeah. What it's interesting, isn't it? Trying to find the you know, Chaplin speaks. You know, the the silent style when they speak. Uh, as you say, I think you know Gar They made a they made a big deal of it when Garbo spoke or whatever. Uh, but with Chaplin, it didn't really seem to. We didn't seem to want him speaking. It seemed to be the, the sort of at the end of him, really. I don't, I don't know if that's right. I mean, the Great Dictator speech obviously is quite famous, but the rest of it, no one really wanted to hear from him. Is that is that because you construct a character? Could, could you get to the, the reason why? Because then, then we're talking about fame and characters and you know the, the whole the whole interesting play on it. Because I think that there's some, something happened. With the public not like not wanted to see the behind the curtain, I don't know. There's a Wizard of Oz yeah. moment there or something. I think that's a really interesting way of putting it because there was some sense that there was a contract broken at the at the point that Chaplin spoke finally. And it, it's interesting because you know um, Chaplin became emblematic of this ideal of silent cinema as a, as what was called visual Esperanto. This idea that you that there was something idealistic about having people from all walks of life sitting side by side and then by extension sitting in cinemas across the world all watching the same thing people who spoke different languages from different classes different genders of course the tramp as we were saying earlier seems to embody that ideal because he himself has no name and no nationality and he's always playing with gender and sexuality um, and upending class and authority so he seems to sort of exemplify this this ideal but at the same time he always was subversive but then I think when his when his politics became more vocalized and then literally vocalized in the great dictator as you say in that final speech where he he sort of nails his colors to the mast that's the point where things start to unravel for him in terms of his up to up to that point pretty much unchecked affection with the American public you know and I think in our, in our film there's a the, the, the kind of climax of our film is where when he's faced by this sort of um, barrage of journalists and um, and the kind of American establishment, and he's told by one journalist, "You stop being a good comedian since you've been bringing messages." 
So that sense that, in it, that, that, that perhaps the Trump had always symbolized these things, but they, but at the same time, people could project onto him um, and they could view him within their own ideology. But as, as you say, once he, once he uttered those things that he seemed to represent, the character in a way is sort of sacrificed. If, if you're, you know, you, you mentioned Chaplin you, and you must have gone around for a couple of years saying, well, we're doing a film about Chaplin, we're doing a film about Chaplin. And you've got approached to do a film about Chaplin. What were your feelings? You're like, Chaplin, what, does it, what did he mean to you? Were you like, oh, what, what, what am I interested? in him for or and what what is it what are various people's reaction as you've taken the film round in terms of film finances it's like oh Chaplin's interesting Chaplin's not interesting I'm trying to get an idea of how he endures you know for the film business for the film watcher in terms of cinema I think it's he's kind of got all of these things there yeah absolutely right there is there's, there's, there's certainly a lot a lot a lot to go on isn't there I mean when we were when we were first approached I mean James and I his, Obviously, a certain amount of cultural familiarity with 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 Chaplin, but we're all very much aware of Chaplin, as James said about the, the how how he's presented to those schoolchildren, without really a kind of um, a sense of even having seen his films. There is just something in the cultural ether about Charlie Chaplin, and that, of course, uh, led us to 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 then look a little bit deeper into into Chaplin's life. And, you know, it really was this most extraordinary uh, canvas of a life. And, and, and we were struck by, you know, his, his, his biographer, David Robinson, described it as the greatest rags to riches story mm. of, of, uh, of all time. And, and, and really it's difficult to, to, um, to take issue with that. You know, from coming from where he did, from the depths and depth, um, of, of, of Victorian uh, poverty, that kind of Dickensian childhood that, that he endured. Um, to the height of that fame in the 1910s, at the birth of cinema, really, when when cinema as a as a uh, was just beginning to to take root, and celebrity, and the birth of celebrity, uh, was a, it was a real kind of a, a moment where his films could travel across the world and 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 would be appreciated by audiences pretty much on every continent. Just hearing the reading the stories of the, the depths of that Chaplin hysteria really was captivating. So it's quite difficult to line that up with anything that would be from familiar with today and I don't think that there could be someone who has that same type of celebrity in 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 the present day that said of course we were drawn by the parallels you know we talked there about the the great dictator speech of course you know when we were making this film I think we first sort of really got our teeth into it in 2017 and there was certainly a kind of a rise of of strongman politics around the world it's it's fascinating to see just how that that great dictator speech and has endured and how, how that that kind of uh, that call for people to sort of unite and to, to fight for a new world, a decent world. I was and, amazed uh, by the parallels with Hitler. I didn't had no idea how close they were in terms of age and Oh, that's that stuff is is kind of wild, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's some sort of cosmic kind of relationship between the two of them. They're they're born a couple of days uh, apart. They both um, had, as, as we say in the film, they both had a deep affection for their mother and resented their father. And, and Hitler had been on the streets of, of Vienna. And whilst at the same time, Chaplin was playing this kind of this, this penniless character on screen. And then, of course, they kind of uh, they, they size up against one another in, in Chaplin's film, The Great Dictator. Um, but yeah, so all that was very much swirling. What did Hitler think, what did Hitler someone... think of Chaplin? I know there was quite a lot in your film about him trying to frame him as a Jew and ban his films. Yeah, they, the, the Nazi Party obviously uh, had had their big kind of clampdown on on anything they they con- considered to degenerate art, wasn't it? The, the term mm. that they, they 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 used for it. But but he was um, 
there was a story that we came across. This was again sort of one of Kevin Brownlow's um, discoveries. Was that there was someone who worked in some capacity for the for the Nazi Party who'd found a log of films that Hitler had been uh, had been checking out of some library, not obviously available to the, the public, but that there was an account that, that, that Hitler had taken the great dictator out twice. <laughs> so there is a suggestion, at least, a strong suggestion that he had seen the film. Did you look at the um, Attenborough film, at the Robert Downey Jr. film? Yeah we, yeah, we watched it very early on, actually, in the process. What do you, what do you make of it? I haven't seen it for ages. I, I, I was watching yours thinking, oh, I should probably see that one again. I remember the the, uh, the sort of musical scenes and that being absolutely brilliant and the, and the drunk routine being yeah, the Exactly. And of, of course, oh. of course, Geraldine Chaplin has like this beautiful performance playing her, her own grandmother, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah, that's really up um, the street, that sort of meta. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they kind of incredibly painstakingly recreate certain sequences and Chaplin on set with, with his kind of technicians and craftsmen um, and kind of restage these sequences in a, in a really detailed and impressive way. And, and I think it, it, it showed us the, the, the challenge as well of telling, I think film always struggles, I think, with, with telling life stories. You know, biopics often have pacing issues. It's very hard to, to, to tell a life, I think, within a single film. Um, and, and that film, like ours, was trying to do a, a kind of cradle-to-grave type story. Um, and I think it, it made us realise that that film uses all sorts of techniques. Like, I think Anthony Hopkins plays the, his kind of book editor, right? And so he's in the process of writing his autobiography. We also were looking for kind of ways that we could kind of I suppose, create these present tenses within the film through Effie and through um, the, the the Life magazine recording and the, and the 97 press conference. Because, um, I mean, any life is tricky, but I think Chaplin's life in particular, partly because of, as Pete said, this incredible arc that he goes on, this extraordinary rags to riches story, but also this this just glorious body of work. You know, there have been so many great documentaries made about a single Chaplin film or a single year in his life. And I think that also made us sort of question the form. And, you know, I think early on we realised that any one approach would kind of be, would be insufficient in, in, in such a complex and elusive character as Chaplin. So we tried to make a film that, that included all sorts of different approaches and was a bit of a collage of, of, um, of in fact, Chaplin calls the, the tram costume a collage of contradictions. And, and we tried to make a film that was, was, was kind of, that took that form. Oh, you had you loads know? of stuff I had no idea about, about you know, being sued for the creation of the, of the, of the tramp, you know, and who, who it belonged to. And that, 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 yeah. I thought that stuff was great. Well, if you, you know, if, if I was a bit like, oh, Chaplin, really, do I have to watch a Chaplin film? what would you choose for me James to say right you sit down you sit yourself down in front of this Jace and you will love your Chaplin I would select for you Jason um, <laughs> I think I'd have like you city lights because I think it's I think it would break your heart and uh make you roll around I just I, I think that's the first of his films that I watched um and the one that made me realize that this was a true artist um but also it's got some just some of the great sequences the the boxing match sequence i'm sure you love to where he's kind of how about you pete what do you think well to compliment that i think we're talking (laughs) features and well the the kid is very accessible i think and just has so much so much it's, it's so rich in terms of in terms of Chaplin's um, and the, that Tramp character, that kind of mixture of of pathos and comedy is is something that is is so masterfully on display in that film. And of course, it has at the heart of it that 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 absolutely uh, delightful relationship between him and, and and the wonderfully talented Jackie Coogan. You know, so many memorable 
scenes. Um, and that's all right, because I, I haven't seen it for a very, very long time, the kid. Probably not since I, in my teenage years. In fact, I remember where I was when I saw it. And it wasn't weird then, but looking at it now, I was like, oh, are we allowed, to, you know, the, 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 the relationship between a man and a child? I, I don't know if right. we could even make that now, those those things. Yeah, so, that's so true. Spurious in there. Well, the, I was going to throw one caveat in there, but I think that the Coogan, uh, the, the, the Chaplin-Coogan relationship endures. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a, a very kind of touching... Yeah, relationship and and uh, and tender relationship. You know, there's that that fantastic shot of of separation, really, which mirrors Chaplin's own yeah. uh, personal biography of the the, the, the county or uh, asylum van turning up and, and dragging Chaplin and uh, dragging Jackie Coogan away. I mean, the 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 the, the one caveat to the recommendation of the kid, I think, is the Lisa Gray sequence when she was 12 years old and this dream sequence, which was really very out of place and really kind of does land with a bit of a, a thud. Uh, nowadays, of 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 her as the the seductive yes, uh, the seductive angel. Um, <laughs> I thought this is very strange. The the um the the boot eating scene from Gold Rush, which I hadn't seen for a while. I thought that was just it looked fantastic. I don't know if you've got a restoration yeah, of it. It just uh, looked beautiful. We're, we're so fortunate to be making the film at this at this time for for a number of reasons. But but yeah, one of them, of course, is that there's so much attention and 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 and. And and care and that's gone into to restoring these, these 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 films over the last few years even and there's there's 4K releases um, which have just come out in the last sort of three or four years um, done done by by people like the the Cinetica de Bologna and Lobster Films over in France and you know these people have really devoted their their lives and careers into into carefully sort of shepherding uh, the, the the memory of silent film. Um, I also just just go back, Jason, to your question about recommendations. For me, I think as well, like it would be a shame not to dive into the shorts, yeah. like because they are just so such perfect kind of um, miniatures. You know, um, films like One AM, where he just takes this the simplest possible idea of just getting home drunk and trying to go upstairs to bed, and he just finds endless kind of comic variations, endless ways to spin this in different ways for for over the course of twenty something minutes. Um, and again, as you say, in terms of like um, how we watch films now, actually in these in these shorter kind of um, formats, I think it's something. It's really refreshing to see something that's a hundred years old that just absolutely it's like a piece of jazz almost that just takes this a, a motif and then just finds and just plays with it and a mechanism and yep. you know, and I think that's probably where we are. You know, look at the sort of video art installation of so Steve McQueen. You know, some yeah. of that was Chaplin-esque in the way that, you know, these the, the, these rolling things kind of, you know, inanimate objects take revenge and, and kind of rule us. And I think though maybe that's why he endures, because he just had this absurdist sense of the modern modernity in the modern world, like yeah. the, the, con yeah. the factory conveyor belts, uh, etc. Yeah. That still that still seems to be relevant. Uh, yeah, and something that, of course, so many of the artistic movements, especially of the early 20th century as well, you know, the surrealist adored Chaplin and the, the Rus Russian constructionists, the futurists, of course, that embody this movement and energy and, uh, and, and, and life. And yeah, there's that fantastic, there's a clip of it in our film, that Fernand Leisure film, The Cubist, sort of film, uh, ballet mechanique of this sort of disassembled chaplain, these sort of elements of the costume that are completely kind of uh, uh, torn apart and yet you still identify him, even just from those, those uh, the, the, the kind of the, the image of, of, of those, those elements of his costume. And yeah, he's just a sort of endlessly uh, fascinating character <laughs> to, well, to, to, to analyze. You guys are brilliant at sort of the senses and art, you know, 
your first one notes on blindness so it made some sense that there was you, you were doing something to do with a silent icon and then uh, and trying to use you know where, where did it chime for you thematically in terms of I don't know I presume you go on to do wider work but you know you get this one and how do you how did you make it into a into into something that was that, that actually kind of kept of a piece with what you were exploring yourselves in terms of cinema and, and preservation and archive yeah that's such an interesting question because you say like our first film was about discovering a kind of acoustic world um john hall who the film was about kind of at first was grieving the loss of his sight but then found this kind of rich new ex world of experience through sound um and in this film we were interested in silence and voices i think yeah that in terms of finding an approach for us, that that kind of idea of, of silence and voices was was a really key one. Um, and and with that, I think the idea of like how we tell stories, how we tell life stories, whose voices are are able to be included in those. As Pete mentioned earlier, you know, Chapman was was always kind of playing around with his mythology, but also had quite a close hand and by the end on how he told his story. In his autobiography, you know, um, he tells his own story, but there are um, but there are strong sense of of what's left out and the omissions and and these this idea of like the gaps the silences the voices that that weren't captured on tape was really interesting to us and you know we've talked a bit about una um and the fact that um she was someone who was very hard to reach she's someone who who there's really almost no audio recordings of at all no interviews certainly amazed by that. Um, and um and so we tried to allude to those things and, and foreground them in the film you know i think it's very easy to it's very tempting as a as a as a documentary filmmaker to kind of present something as as though it's um complete um but i think we almost wanted to do the opposite with chapman we wanted to show where the gaps were and the things that didn't add up and the things that we couldn't make sense of and i think it made total sense for a figure like him who is so elusive and so hard to reach and who it seems you know the more we looked into it the more versions of chaplin we found um do you like and... do you like charlie chaplin now that you know the person i don't know well, it, 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 it's it's i'm giving it like a you know like um like uh, a movie basketball in 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 Ralph and Mike. do you like charlie <laughs> chaplin it's like you you guys know him more than i do but I, I, but what does he mean charlie do you like charlie chaplin the film do you like the person would you like him if you met him actually i'm going back again to like making this film after making notes on blindness you know our previous film was a collaboration with with John Hull and his family. Um, and, he, and, you know, he was very much a co-author of the film. And this is a very different experience, making a film about someone who, first of all, has been gone for, for a long time. And even the, most of the people who knew him, knew him best are gone. You know, we, we, that's one of the reasons we wanted to end the film, I think, with the voices of, of his children, is because for, for them, he is still alive in their memories. He's still being reprocessed. And so it felt important to, to end the film, I think, with their voices. He's also someone who so many people has, have an idea of and a conception of. And I think we were conscious of trying to make a film that could either be an introduction to his work, but also hopefully held a lot for people who'd never seen a Chaplin film. But in terms of our relationship with him, I feel like we were always sort of retracing the footsteps of people who who tried to find him previously, you know, um, and those people really let us in, like Kevin Brownlow, who recorded that those interviews with 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 Effie and, and other people. Um, David Robinson, his biographer, we had lots of meetings with, and he shared all his archives with us. So we were always kind of um, one step removed, I think, which then made it interesting when the people who did sort of know him best said that he was always acting, that he was always performing, that he was always on show. 
So there's a sense for us that his elusiveness was felt even by the people when they were in the room with him. Yeah, but you become like a, a, a obsessive detectives where, you know, you, you, you think you're involved and he's trying to throw you off the scent and he's like actually knows that you're there and he's trying to trying to thwart you with his slight... Yeah, <laughs> like but were you, you weren't like the, the like the Woody Allen documentary, the, the, the one that sort of brought him down recently, you know, the Kirby Dick one. You weren't trying to go, right, we're going to go nail Chaplin and we're going to put everyone off him for life. Was there a moment you thought, no, I can't do that? We didn't want to, you know, we didn't want the film to be didactic about how anyone should feel about Chaplin. What we really wanted to do was foreground the voice of Lita Gray and and her story. I think, you know, we we entrust the audience to to be intelligent enough to be able to, you know, make up their own Mm. um, minds about Chaplin. Um, And I think, you know, in a sense, going back to your earlier question about you know, cancellation and stuff, you know, to some degree, I think, as we said earlier, audiences at the time, you know, when Lee, when Lita talks about not being able to reconcile um, what she was saying about Chaplin with the character on screen, you know, Chaplin is the first sort of celebrity in the way that we understand it today, you know, before he began making films in 1914, they, 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 ha- they weren't quite spreading across the, the globe in the way that they, in the way that they did. And, and, and by 1916, his films being watched by hundreds of millions of people on a regular basis. So his, that type of celebrity was something that began with Chaplin. And I think this sense of like how we relate to characters on screen and then how that relationship matches up with, with the real person, with the real Charlie Chaplin in, in, in quotation marks, is something that's so kind of elemental to his story. Um, and it's something that clearly we're still kind of struggling with as, as a society. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, your film like adds another layer to it. I've got to sort of solve it. What do you think in a hundred years' time, the people we saw still be talking about Charlie Chaplin? I think that I think that it's it's clear that his films endure, isn't it? I mean, as long I think as long as we're experiencing <laughs> for, uh, cinema in in the way that we do today, you know that 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 sense of him reaching out and communing with us from the, from the screen, I think is an incredibly powerful thing. And, and we felt it, we talk about it in our film, of course, this idea of him, him, him looking at us. And, and there's some sort of crackle in that connection that I think is, uh, yeah, is, is, is kind of timeless. Yeah, I think he's us, isn't he? He's wandered into shot, you know, he plays with the frame. So that's, whether that's we, we're watching cinema in the same way at all, I don't know. But we, did, we, weren't yeah. watching, we, we don't watch cinema the same way now as we did when we started watching it when Chaplin was in it so you know to to all those people who say it's dead well it you know it's not dead but it it was different when Charlie Chaplin started and he's managed to endure through all of the uh, all of the kind of iterations of cinema so I guess and and there is you know there was significant uh, at times you know the 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 chips were stacked against him uh is that a phrase (laughs) the odds were stacked against him um you know Kevin Kevin Brownlee obviously has done more than most in terms of you know excavating Chaplin's life and work and there's a fantastic book called The Search for for Charlie Chaplin which traces I guess the kind of um the process of his of his wonderful three-part uh ITV series from the from the 1980s which really drills into um into Chaplin's kind of working process the the unknown Chaplin and you know Kevin in that talks talks a lot about just how after after Chaplin very much fell out of fashion in the in in the 1940s and how silent cinema of course of which 90 percent or of of it is has been lost to 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 time was very much suppressed by the studios they would re-record audio tracks sort of dub over audio tracks deliberately play films at the wrong speed you know the the chances of a lot of these silent film comedians especially 
making it through to this age, uh, to this to this point in 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 time, and to be appreciated by modern audiences, um, was 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 in 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 no small part uh, was was no guarantee, and mm. and in no small part um, a credit to to a few individuals really of of whom Kevin Brownlow stands tall amongst them in terms of being able to ensure that 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 this these works of art are, are preserved for for modern audiences. Yeah, that very very interesting things about that you know that uh, you say is a gift now and all of these things you know then that i think that actually I, I i often look at you know here's my phone and you know whatever is the instagram whatever you go through and i don't have the sound on quite a lot of the time and you sort of see some funny things and you know i'm watching so i'm actually probably watching more silent stuff now than i have in at any time in my life you know we grew up with sound so it is it's kind of back and as you say chaplin suits that very well Totally, yeah, and it's um, and what I was going to say a second ago in terms of the hundred years from now, we, we there was a version of the film that ended with Chaplin wandering through an apocalyptic landscape because um, there's a there's a film script written by James Agee which called the Tramp's New World where all life on Earth is um, is exterminated by a kind of huge apocalyptic event and and every and every all life on Earth is is, is destroyed except except the Tramp and so. Um, and um, and it begins with him wandering through these these vast kind of wastelands, and um, so he wants to end the film with that image, but yeah. uh, it didn't quite <laughs> <laughs> couldn't quite put it together. Well, the old um, image of the cane swinging, you know, that's that, that that's classic. Yeah, there's yeah. a certain certain romance. And I think Charlie in space, would, you know, there's there's definitely he's in there. He's probably in space somewhere. Someone's probably put a capsule up there, and he's probably <laughs> there in, be, in, yeah. in time. Uh, listen, I, I, yeah. it was it was fascinating talking to you. Fascinating watching your film. Congratulations uh, on that. Really nice. Thank to you. So much, Jason. Well, I thought that was fascinating stuff talking to James and Peter. But then I've seen the doc, The Real Charlie Chaplin, which you can do now too. It's out in the UK on February the 18th. And I really did love loads of little bits of it, but particularly Effie from Southwark uh, and the way she spoke, and also how those bits of London matched up to how Charlie Chaplin eventually put them in his famous movies. And there's the sadness of the Switzerland episodes too so uh, fascinating stuff the real charlie chaplin but i hear you ask jason have you seen any good films lately i can tell you about encanto if you'll let me talk about bruno a very enjoyable animation from lynn manuel miranda a good family film for sure it's got some excellent music in it that's really catching on and becoming i think the, the defining musical of the moment three tracks in the singles charts no less although not one that's been oscar nominated weirdly that one is dos origuitas which is nice but it's a bit bland compared to the other three i think and well bland can normally win you an oscar so it's perhaps a good choice Look, Encanto is about finding your own magic powers. And I can't say it's the topmost stuff of recent animation. It's not an up or an inside out or a Wally -E or even the best of Ghibli at all. But it does have verve and energy and good lyrics, a witty animation style too that feels very well acted. You know, I thought these characters were very well performed by their computer generated drawings. And my kids can't stop singing the songs, which is a good thing. Until you have to ask them to shut up for a minute, please. And then you can give thanks that at least it's not bloody frozen again. So there you go. That's the show for this week. Thanks to my guest, James Spinney, uh, Peter Middleton and to Kate Dawkins for putting it all together as ever. I'll leave you with a bit from Encanto, just so you can have it earworming in your head all day too. You can thank me next week. Adios. Thunder. You're telling the story, you're my 
story mi vida go on Bruno says it looks like rain Why is he tell us? In doing so he floods my brain Abuela gets the umbrella 